You know there's a way for nurses to start a business, but there's so many moving pieces. Cut through the crap. It's time to go right to the source and get real about what's working in business and marketing for nurses with your host, the founder of Nursepreneurs, Katie Harris. This is an episode of the Nursepreneur Podcast. Today we have Dr. Candy Campbell on with us. Um, she is the owner of CandyCampbell.com, and I'm really, really excited to uh, talk to you, Candy, today and learn all about what you're doing. So, welcome. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Katie, for this opportunity. Uh, all right. So, tell me about you as, as a nurse. Like, where did you kind of get started, and how did it lead to you owning a business? Well, you know, a lot of people are not coming into nursing right from high school. I had a life before I was a nurse, and I know a lot of my students that I've had um, in graduate school say that they also have had another life. So my other life was that at first, my first degree is in speech communications and theater with an emphasis in acting. So I've been a SAG-AFTRA union actor for many, many years, and that's been my side gig. If you know anything about that business, it's very difficult. I think they say 95% of we union actors don't make our living that way. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can't buy a house usually unless you're some sort of uh, movie star or something. It's, you know, it's, it's just the reality. So that's okay. But um, once I had gotten, um, I had graduated with my bachelor's and I was doing some summer stock, I was en route after the summer. I was going to take off for either LA or New York. I had offers in both places and I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but it's the beginning of the summer and I got cast in uh, a show you might remember. I don't know how old you are, but um, there was a, a movie made out of a Neil Simon play called Barefoot in the Park. Funny comedy. And I got cast in the lead of that. There's, there's really just a, a man and a woman in it. Jane Fonda and Robert Redford, I think, played in the movie. At any rate, one night when we were first blocking the show, the leading man wasn't there for some reason. And the director, who I knew, I had babysat his kids, put the moves on me. And when I basically pushed him across the room and said, what are you doing? He said, well, come on, you know, this is the way the game is played. <laughs> this is what you're going to have to do. And I'm like, not me. No, I'm a comic actor. That's, that's not my thing. So I, I basically walked off that show and I could just hear him, you know, the old iconic, you'll never work in this town again, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, uh, so I didn't act for about 10 years and in desperation, I didn't know what to do, but I had spent some time in college abroad. I spent uh, six months in Europe and focused in Vienna. And I thought, okay, I'll take this time to travel if I can. And so providentially enough, I was hired as a flight attendant by Pan Am and got to fly all over the world for about five years. And coincidentally, 
if you thought that this is a random thing, the fact is that one of my signature stories is that while I was uh, working as a flight attendant, I got the call to be a nurse. We were flying from New Delhi to Karachi, Pakistan, about a four and a half hour flight. And this is in the days when the 747s were new and we were in a packed flight with mostly local people because you know those two countries have a lot of uh, common families. And there were grandpas and grandpas and toddlers and chickens under the seat and all chickens. <laughs> I kid you not, and ducks, and anything that could fit in some sort of carry-on under the seat, international laws are different than domestic laws, and uh, it was a very interesting flight, and this is also dating me, this was in the day when we, even in the economy section, we served a three-course meal, chicken, fish, or steak, and after that warm meal, with the dessert and everything, we had to heed the captain who put on the seatbelt sign because we hit some turbulence. And I mean some severe turbulence, the kind that make people afraid to fly. And so my seatmate and I got in our seatbelts and we're looking at, the, we were in serving the back end of this 747. And we're bumping along and bumping along. And finally, we took this big dive. And at that moment, we witnessed 124 people vomit in unison. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was ribbons of vomit. And my poor seatmate was like sick to her stomach just to even see it and smell it. And she, you know, I learned you either run to help or run to hide. She ran to hide. I got up breathing through my mouth and just started doing what I could to help. You know, um, people say, well, what did you do? What could you help? Well, in the day, everybody had a blanket and a pillow. Oh, I remember those days. They were wonderful. <laughs> And so I was just taking the blankets out and covering the filth and, you know, helping as best I can clean people up and whatever. And when it was over, my seatmate came back and she said, you know, I do not know how you could do that. You ought to be a nurse. And it was really kind of what I had been thinking anyway. We'd even been having a conversation about what we would do because there we were mid-20s and not home a lot, you know, you're gone 20 days a month. And I wanted to get on with my life, you know, and I wasn't sure, but there was a time when I wanted to be a nurse and my high school counselor said, well, you know, let's look at your scores. <laughs> you're off the charts and reading and comprehension, but you got B's and C's in math and science. So <laughs> maybe nursing isn't a good choice for you. So. I figured I'd give it a second try, and that began the next chapter. Oh, I love that story. So one that you, you really take me back with the uh, with the, the flights and stuff, and I, I do remember Pan Am. Um, uh, but that that is a great great story. Um, 
of how you got to nursing. Uh, so how did you incorporate, like, was, okay, so why don't you start by telling me, like, you went to nursing school and did you start, what kind of unit did you start working in? What was your nursing career kind of like? Well, I call it my crazy quilt of nursing career because when I started, I was licensed in 1979, but who's counting, right? <laughs> it's a long time ago. And what, yeah, that's 40 years, 41 years now. Uh, so they, it was hard then kind of, you know, some places you will have that kind of like to every 20 years or something like right now, there's a lot of people retiring out of nursing and it's a good time to get in. Well, that was not a good time to get in. There weren't any jobs. So the first thing I had done was I was a burn tech as a CNA and then, um, you know, there wasn't a job to hire me into. So I took a, a psych job and that was interesting doing behavioral health. And I did that for about a year. And then something opened up into the float pool. I was in the LA area at the time. And so there I was in the float pool and you know what that's like. <laughs> you can't, the worst assignment you know, oh, we have a float. Let's give her that really difficult patient. <laughs> so, you know, you, you learn to flex, you learn to be adaptable. And uh, so it was because of that, my goal that I did not keep to myself was that I wanted to be ICU, CCU, kind of a nurse and maybe even labor and delivery. So I got a break, meaning one day they didn't need me in the float pool and i said i really you know i had newly married and and we kind of depended upon me to work a few nights a week for our budget i said is there anything i could do or train to and she said well i don't know that you'd want to do this but they do need somebody on the iv team and i'm like yes yes sign me up so I got to be trained by some wonderful women in the IV team. And I just spoke for the Infusion Nurses Society. So that was a fun, a fun story I had to tell them. And then because I worked in ICU, CCU after that for a couple of years, then I, I really wanted to do labor and delivery. And I got an opportunity to do that. And during that time, as it happened, um, I had been in LA, and this happens to a lot of people, I'd been rear-ended pretty bad. And so during that time, they gave me a modified work uh, assignment in the NICU. And I thought, well, this is kind of fun. I don't think I'm really ready for this. I really liked labor and delivery. And then as it turned out, we moved. And you know, in nursing, when you move, you don't take your seniority with you, right? So we moved and I did get another labor and delivery position. And pretty soon that hospital, it was a small mountain hospital, it closed and I had to start doing home care, which I found out I really liked doing that too. And after that, I got a call from a different hospital to come and do labor and delivery again. And through them, they said, you know, 
It's great that you're here doing labor and delivery. What we really need are some new NICU nurses. By any chance, would you like to train for the NICU? And by that time, I'd been rear-ended another time. So I said, absolutely. <laughs> and I spent the last, I think, 23 years doing NICU. And then, you know, there comes a time when, when you know, I had a couple of surgeries and it's like, ah, bedside is just not gonna work for me anymore. So then I had an opportunity to go and be an administrator with the Department of Health Services in California, in uh, Northern California. I helped certify 120 hospitals for the newborn hearing screening program. It was the nurse, the program nurse, the only nurse in that program for a few years. And, you know, one thing led to another. I got a faculty position and finished my doctorate and around 1995 I do you ever well I, I got to ask you this question before I tell you what I did Katie you're doing this because you have some sort of entrepreneurial spirit and something happened that made you say to yourself somebody ought to do something about that am I right oh yeah <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Exactly. Well, that similar thing happened to me. And it was 1995 when I realized that something was happening. I was still a NICU nurse then in the NICU. And that was that we were saving these teeny tiny micro premature babies. And a newspaper article through the, the Reuters system had just come out about a study in the 80s. It was like a 10 or 15 year study that published in 1995 and the results were terrible. It said that those babies would mostly likely not achieve an IQ very high and that maybe not more than like 85 or so was their conclusion and that many of them wouldn't even finish sixth grade and the overarching opinion of the study for all these experts who were on the news talking about it was that maybe our tax dollars should not be supporting these kinds of neonatal intensive care if this is what we're doing just inculcating society with high tax dollars for little return on investment. And in 1995, I don't know how much you know about that, but we were saving these, like I said, these micro mini babies, they were 24 to 28 weeks. The first time we really had the technology to save them. And not only were we saving them, a lot of them were doing well. If they survived, you know, about 40% or so didn't even survive um, the first week or so, but, but about 60% of them, as long as they were about 26 weeks, some, some even smaller, were surviving and doing well. Because by that time, I was also working follow-up clinic. And, you know, I was going to conferences and all the nurses were saying the same thing. Somebody ought to tell, there's no, there's no research. There's no follow-up about this. People, the world needs to know about these babies. And so, because, and here's how the interesting paths cross because I had 
I was still doing a lot of voiceovers, commercials and such like that. I knew a lot of uh, producers in the San Francisco area and I was, I was pitching this idea to every single one of them. I have, I got a great idea for a documentary for you. I got this research and I, and I pointed to, you know, what little there was and that this would be a great opportunity for first person reporting and so great. And every single one of them said the very same thing. You know, I'm really busy. <laughs> and if you kind of have a thing about this, if you really feel strongly about this, maybe you should be the person to do it. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm a single mom with three kids, two in high school, one in middle school, uh, you know, trying to get ready for the college and all of that. And I don't, I don't know. It was, you better go to film school. Well, so I did. Oh my God, you're kidding. <laughs> you went to film school. I love it. I'm one semester away from my AA degree in film production because by that time, because I had this, you know, overarching, I call it this mantle of responsibility. I knew what it would look like. I knew what it was for. And once I took certain classes, the universe just provided what I needed. I got grants and I got sponsors and it was a five-year journey. Probably never would have taken had I known it was going to be that long. <laughs> You know, anyway, so it became an award-winning documentary film called Micro Premature Babies, How Low Can You Go? And that was the first to answer that long-windedly. Your answer to the question of how do I get into business by myself, it was because I saw a problem and I figured somebody ought to do something to solve it. So that's it. Oh my goodness. Um, wow. So did you, I'm actually interested in this film, like did you... Um, talk to like you did first person accounts so you talked to the families because that's probably something the research didn't take into account whether the families were happy or not with with the results there was a lot of uh, secondary research um looking into charts so it was qualitative uh, quantitative stats on you know vitals and end results for you know testing and things like that so i went to oh i have oh, i have 30 hours of film just of the 12 families that I wound up with. And then in the film, there's only, I believe, six families that I honed in on. Several of them I had been the primary nurse with. So, you know, they opened up in a way that was different. By the time I was ready to, to launch, there had already been some TLC movies or documentaries, you know, where they took a camera into the NICU and, and did an interview or so. And, you know, they told about what was happening, which was terrific because I didn't have the budget for that kind of filming. But I went into the homes of these people and as opposed to a stranger asking you, well, how is this experience for you? And them saying something, I am, you know, stereotypical, like, well, it was a real challenge, but you know, it was all worth it, that kind of thing. Mine is a very emotional film because I prepared the families for going back in time and got their permission to rehash some very difficult times with me in the room. I'm not in the film, but um, there were a lot of, it was therapeutic for them, you know? 
Nobody had asked them except for their families. And sometimes they shared their families just, so they didn't even want to know. Did I freeze there for a sec? Yeah, just for a sec. That's okay, okay though. Yeah, they didn't, the families don't always want to know everything if they, if they haven't been there. It's difficult. It's difficult. Um, so it was therapeutic for them. And the results were that I, with this qualitative research that I finished, realized as the parents told me, one of them came right out and said, you know, her mom was suffering, actually wound up dying from cancer at the same time that her baby was, her twins were born at like 24 weeks. And she said, with all the stress of everything, I think I had PTSD. And now we know, you know, there really hadn't been a lot at the turn of the century written about what constitutes a, a post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. She had all the symptoms, the, the night sweats and the, and the replay of certain things and uh, the distress and the anxiety that goes with it. And it came in waves. It's so paralleled the uh, heretofore other research about soldiers who had been in action, who had exemplified these symptoms that it was it was interesting and it was one of the beginnings of what is now a pretty thorough strain of research if you will in terms of what happens to the family unit when they do everything right they think and then this event happens and turns their life upside down yeah um, so, Candy, how did you go from this documentary to the business that you have now? Was it, uh, I mean, how did that streamline into it or did it streamline into it? It did. It did. As a matter of fact, <laughs> the link is like a chain. So I started my own podcast, The Premi Post, and I was doing that for a few years. And one of those um, couples that was in the film, again, you know, when you, when you get to know them that well, because I'd been their primary nurse for several months. Uh, she came over to my house and, and we were doing a podcast uh, interview that day. And I had had, at the very moment she was there, I had had delivered my first book. And the reason I wrote the first book, again, is because I thought I could find the book and I couldn't find the book. And uh, what it was, it's, uh, I have uh, a few children's books. And the, this first one was called My Mom is a Nurse. And I, I'm happy to say it still sells now on five continents. China just opened up. I don't know. But anyway, it's in Spanish and Japanese and different things. But that was the first prototype of that book. The day it arrived was the day she came to my house for this podcast and I showed it to her and she loved it. I think her sister's a nurse, so she wanted a copy, but she said, I got your second book. Now I had only written that book because like I said, I couldn't find it and somebody in my unit was gonna have a baby and she wanted children's books. And I just thought, well, there, I'll get that, you know, my mom is a nurse book. So anyway, I wrote that and then, uh, 
this gal Dana said, um, you should write, I was a preemie. I'm like, oh, I, I think my next book's going to be, um, you know, my grandma's a nurse, which turned out to be another one of my books. But she said, no, 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 I'll, I got to tell you the problem. The problem is that when we, the girls went to kindergarten, they, the teachers um, sent back, well, it was one teacher for the two girls, I guess, uh, sent back a note. We'd like to have a kind of a, a rogue gallery of baby pictures, and we're going to have this game at Valentine's Day. Instead of giving Valentine's, we're going to figure out who was who, you know, that kind of a thing. And so they sent in pictures of the kids when they were about a year or something old. And the teacher called and said, no, 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 I want a, you know, hospital baby picture, baby newborn picture. And they're like, oh, we don't look at those pictures. And so the teacher twisted their arm and she told me for the first time in like five years, they took a box full of photos because we didn't have cell phones then, took a box full of photos out of the closet, set it down. Now the girls knew that they had been premature, but they didn't know what it meant. And they saw the pictures. And you know what? She said they were horrified. They were horrified that you left us alone with strangers and for months and and you let them stick needles in us and put things down our nose. And they ran around like little banshees, she said, just so upset. And she said, you know, I've, I've got this um, twins uh, group that she's, she visited with. She said, we're not the only ones. This is like a thing. It's a problem when these kids realize that you abandoned them. <laughs> so that's how that book came to be. And I'm happy to say it sells really well. Um, a lot of the NICUs buy that book and put it in their little gifty bag for when the kids go home. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So that was that. And then after the book, well, you have to know that during the side gig part of this, because I was still working as a nurse and then doing all these things on the side, um, I had gone through this divorce. And it was time for me to start laughing again. And so I decided as an actor, I would try stand-up comedy. So I was in a class with some other people and they were taking improv classes. And I noticed that they were loose on the stage with their routines, their comedy routines. And I was stiff and so, I started taking improv. Now I already had a degree in acting, but I, we didn't get that taught because it was, you know, improv didn't start getting taught in schools until probably the seventies, the mid seventies or something. And that was just at the time when I left. So I started taking improv and was doing stand up and improv for many years started my own improv company, co-founded that with some people. And we did that for about three years. And you know, theater groups are kind of amorphous. And when that sort of changed, the other woman and I in the group, there's two gals and two guys, 
um, when the guys dropped out, we said, okay, we're going to, we both have healthcare backgrounds. We're going to pitch our, we're going to do some uh, stand up and maybe some improv and we're going to do some sketch comedy and we're going to make a show and we're going to sell it to organizations, to healthcare organizations. So the first one we booked was my own um, neonatal nurses. And we started about, I guess it was about seven months out. We started working on it. They had paid us half up front. And right around this time of year, around Labor Day, she calls and she says, you're not going to believe this. I'm going to get a divorce. And I just, I can't do this show first week in December. We're going to have to give them their money back and quit. And I said, no, nah, I don't think so. It's hard to get that money back once it's in your hands. <laughs> So I said, I'm going to do a one person show. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. She goes, well, okay, but don't use any of the material that we did because that that's some of my thoughts too. That's my intellectual property too. We're going to use that together and maybe we'll do that down the road. So basically I laid out on the ground and cried for at least a minute. So frustrated, didn't know what to do. And you know something, have you, are you familiar with, um, uh, Julia Cameron and her The Artist's Way book. No, that sounds like a good book, though. I recommend it for any creative person who wants to be more creative, get in touch with their creativity. It became a kind of a artist's Bible for me of journaling and all of this kind of thing and, you know, positive affirmations. And she was so helpful. Her philosophy is that the universe will give you what you want in terms of creative ideas. There's no such thing as writer's block. What that is, is you saying no to the universe. The universe will open up. It's just like ideas are like picking fruit off a tree, if you will allow it. So I said a prayer and opened up to the universe. And you know, in three weeks time, I had a show. Wow. So that was my first show. And then, you know, they all three have been about healthcare and that's how the, they happened. Well, okay. So, I mean, that worked out really well for you. So you went on to do just a, a one woman show in improv for healthcare organizations. No, actually it wasn't that. <laughs> no, a solo show is where you write a script and you become different characters so my first one was a trunk show, we call it. I had a trunk behind me with different things, a hat or a dress that I'd throw on or something. And I, I didn't have enough money to have a screen. And it turns out that I was just doing, a, you know, 12 different com comedic monologues. It's 12 different characters that I created. And the audience, of course, they're, they're nurse friends. And it, well, I didn't know them, but, you know, a lot of them were all nurses, so they were very forgiving. And, and I found out that the audience doesn't mind if you turn your back and put on a hat and come turn around as somebody else. Um, it was kind of fun for them. So that was the first one. The second one was a different challenge. And uh, that one started in San Francisco in the fringe and it won um, 10 best to, I was one of the 10 best to watch. It was all about healthcare and HMO. I played six characters in that one and did something new for me because I had seen John Legrizamo. I don't know if you know him. No. He, 
famous actor now, but he was getting a start. He had, he was on the tour after his Broadway show at one person show. I was so taken by his method. And what he did was for the first time I saw somebody who was doing all these characters, having a dialogue with each other on stage at the same time. So I had a wonderful director who helped me figure out how to do that. And that was the second show. And the third show is An Evening with Florence Nightingale, A Reluctant Celebrity. Tell me more about that one. That's, uh, I see that on your website a lot. <laughs> well, again, a funny thing happened in, you know, life just gives you these opportunities. So I was a professor then at the University of San Francisco. I was until I moved here to the East Coast because uh, for whatever reason, they only allow California residents to be professors. So anyway, I was happily teaching in the graduate school of nursing uh, there and teaching simulation and uh, leadership and some other classes. And uh, it was 2010 and the librarian came to a faculty meeting and she said, hey y'all, do you know that this is the 100th birthday or anniversary of Florence Nightingale's death? And we're like, yeah, we heard, you know, kind of weird thing to celebrate, but yeah, okay. And she said, well, what you may not know is that we in the library now have all of her 200 books and articles and 15,000 letters digitalized. And come and get it, I'll help you plow through them if you want. Well, evidently I was the only one who was interested. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little daunting, 15,000 letters. <laughs> I've read them all, but I've read most of those things. And you know, again, based on all my previous um, work, and, and I didn't tell you I was a high school journalist, so that, that helped. Um, I put together, actually, I, um, this book, which is channeling Florence Nightingale, Integrity, Insight, Innovation. And the reason I titled it that is because I decided to do the show when one of my National Speakers Association friends heard me going on and on at a Christmas party about, wow, this lady, she was such a Renaissance woman. Man, if she was alive today, I know she'd do this and I know she'd do that. And I just feel like so connected with this dead person. <laughs> and he said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm hearing you talk about this famous nurse lady, right? Right. And you're a nurse. Yeah, that's right. And you are an actor. Yes. And you've had two solo shows. Yes, I have. And then why isn't this your third solo show? I'm like, oh, oh no, that means, oh, there's another solution. There's another problem that needs a solution. So I had already, what I was telling them was that I couldn't help myself as a researcher. I had already done three columns of themes that I found over and over and over in everything she wrote. And uh, I made them into the alliteration of integrity, insight, and innovation, because that's it. And it carries forth in nursing today, boy, <laughs> now as well as then. Yeah, absolutely. So how did your um, Nightingale shows go over um, and where do you do them? Do you still do them? 
Oh, indeed. Now we're virtual. Uh huh. <laughs> I can uh, I can tell you that uh, the last uh, well I just last week I think it was I performed for the uh, Infusion Nurses Society virtually, and then um, the week before that I performed for a, a theater in uh, San Francisco called the Marsh Theater, which is a, a pretty famous theater there and did 20 minutes of the show, some Q&A, and that is even available, which I can tell you later on YouTube, that, that one. Um, yes, I'm, I have been doing the show now since 2015. It's, gosh, I can't believe it's five years. Two different associations and um, nursing associations, as well as healthcare organizations. And you can imagine, Katie, this year, 2020, being the year of the nurse, I was fully booked until COVID came. And then we went underground. <laughs> so now I'm doing, now I'm speaking to you from my virtual studio, flexing like nurses do. Yeah, nurses are very good at that. <laughs> All right, so you call yourself the innovation nurse. Did that come out of your work with Florence, or did you have that name before? No, oh, I, I took it because people kept telling me that's what I should be, because that's what I was. Because, like I said, this crazy quilt of not only clinical, but administrative and academic, and all these other things that I've been doing, I just think, that if you have your eyes open and you listen to problems instead of just grousing about things, if you say, what if, what if somebody, you know, and then you can step into the somebody role. Uh, that's just what I've done. And the improv part is really the key to innovation, I think, because what I learned going back to when I was doing stand-up, I had learned the sort of setup punchline template, but you know, unless you're loose enough to be aware of your surroundings, a lot about listening and um, when you're on stage, but life is like that too. And so I have been, um, Gosh, I think it was it was 1995 when the uh, the troupe in the Bay Area was still playing. <clears throat> and after one performance, well, people always came up to us, you know, and said, "Oh, you guys couldn't possibly have done that on the fly. It must have been planned." And we're like, "No, sorry, you'll never see it again." <laughs> That's the way improv is. And um, this one guy. I, I can only remember two things. His name was Michael, and I know the company, the Silicon Valley company that he was with, came up to us and said, you know, would you be able, would you guys come to our, our company and teach our engineers how to play nice with each other and be a deaf? And so that's how I started teaching improv, because as it turned out, the other three couldn't do it or... I, you know, my minor was in, in education, so I had already had some curriculum development under my wings, and I knew what to do, at least I thought I did. So I started in 1995 with businesses teaching improv to teams. And um, lately, and it's really interesting, too, about healthcare, 
You know, Katie, about how we are so hierarchical. The military model, right? Sometimes it's really tough to get a new, fresh idea through the silos and the bastions of healthcare. So honestly, that was the key to why I even took a doctorate in the next place. I was happy enough, but you know, the university wanted that, wanted me to have a doctorate. So I'm like, okay, I'll do it. But when the Dean talks to you about, okay, what are you gonna do? We'd like you to make an inroad into some already predetermined research that's there, or even better yet, if you can be one of those innovators, which she said you seem to have in your, in your wheelhouse. Why don't you think of something that hasn't been done? I said, oh, I got it. You know, let me teach improv to healthcare teams, which became the next book, Improv to Improve Healthcare. The subtitle is A System for Creative Problem Solving. So, I, yeah, you are very lucky to have a dean that let you do whatever you want. That's amazing because, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of times they do try and push you into, we have this problem and you need to be part of that team. And you're like, no, not that. Um, so, yeah, you're very, very lucky that way. Um, and I, I love the idea of, of improv for, because you're right, um, the that, that hierarchical mar uh, model that we have in healthcare. I, I mean, I would go so far as to say it, it not only doesn't allow ideas to percolate up, they, I feel like it's actively squashed. And that was kind of my exit out of healthcare was just repeatedly having my ideas squashed or, you know, told you can't do that. And it just made me crazy. Exactly. Exactly. And we are the positive deviants, those of us who are a thorn. And I just remember my director, when she saw me coming towards her with that look on my face, and I got another idea, she'd go, look, I just don't have time for you right now. <laughs> and I heard that a lot. Yeah. You know, that's too bad. Uh, so how would you characterize, uh, you know, because you have so much, I mean, you have the books and the improv and the workshops and the speaking and the, and all that stuff. And how would you characterize what it is that you do? Is there kind of what, like a big framework that you work under for your business? Uh, my mission is to um, make media or create uh, programs that educate, inspire, and inform. And so when it falls through that filter, I have to really think about, you know, if it doesn't, then, you know, I, I toss it out if, if, and I'm asked to do a lot of different things. Um, but, you know, between, between all the ideas that come to me anyway, <laughs> and now, by the way, I have uh, one of my close friends from the National Speakers Association who's also a nurse, um, Sharon Weinstein. Uh, she and I, she also lives in the DC area, and we, when I moved here a year ago, um, we were happily uh, lunch buddies for you know at least a, a, a couple of times a month. Uh, tossing ideas around me. She's also an author and a speaker. And when COVID came, we both belly ached for, I don't know, a couple, three weeks, I think. And finally, just almost at the same time on one of our calls, she said, you know, we got to do something positive. We're, you know, I can't stand being this negative Nelly anymore. And I say, that's exactly what I was going to tell you today. I've been thinking and she'd been thinking 
what could we do? What does the world need right now? Right now, the world needs encouragement. And um, as I said to her, what the world needs is integrity, insight, and innovation. And she said, well, how are we going to do that? So the upshot is we created a new LLC and we're calling it Lead for Excellence. And we are presenting our very first annual, this time it's virtual, Global Healthcare Leadership Summit in November. And what we decided is that it will be free because people need free right now. And, you know, the laws of karma and everything else going for us, that if we get, when we get sponsors, and we've got quite a few now, that they're going to take care of our back end expenses because, you know, we had to hire a tech team and all kinds of things. Um, we, we have the ability to live stream to up to, I think it's 3000 people at a time with all this tech team whiz people. I don't know what they're doing, but that's what they're doing. That tech stuff. <laughs> we have 30 speakers. We might even have a couple of more. And we, the first day, November 5th, is the systemic aerial view of what we have learned through our integrity, you know, because it's our integrity that gives us the agency to really make changes that are positive in healthcare. And so we have all these healthcare leaders, many nurses, but some from other uh, HR and some other uh, areas of uh, healthcare leadership as well. And we're talking about the insight of what we've learned through the pandemic and what systemically organizations need to do to, to turn on a dime and flex and go forward um, now and after it's finished because everybody, everything's going to be slightly different, right? Day one. Day two is we're answering the question, what can we do individually? What are our insights? And we have several innovative panels of innovators from different areas, including medical device and pharma, and as well as many nurse entrepreneurs who ask the question, should I plan B? You know, lots of different things, lots of different things. So, um, we are going to, we do have a website, uh, which I'll, I'll let your uh, listeners know. And on Monday, we will have the live registration available. And like I said, it's free. And we have a partner who's giving CEUs at a nominal price. So very excited uh, about that. Yeah, it, that's awesome. I'd, I'd, I'd love to attend that and just uh, listen to what you guys have to say. That sounds really amazing. And, uh, you know, thank you for making that free because that is incredibly valuable. Thank you. Um, all right, Candy, uh, this is amazing. Like your career is amazing, your experiences, uh, everything that you're doing. Uh, it's just, uh, what do you, I, I guess, kind of like one of my last questions, because uh, I probably could talk to you for hours, but um, what do you see coming up next? So you have this LLC, is that something you're going to grow or are you going to uh, continue to do both businesses simultaneously? Yes. And as we say, yes. And we, 
because, and I'll tell you why, Sharon's focus is on work-life balance. She has a great story about uh, how that happened. And of course, mine is on helping teams through the miscommunication of interprofessional um, working. And so, because I, I do, all, we both have separate businesses that keep us busy enough, but we felt that together, these other events that we have planned, we'll have two, two events next year. Uh, plus, we're writing a book together. Oh, and of course, I have another. We're, we're each writing our own separate books. Plus, we have several of our leaders <laughs> coming together to help us with that next book from Lead for Excellence. So, yes, and. You gonna... are quite prolific in writing. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, you know, I'll just leave you with one thought. If that I was so impressed with Florence Nightingale, even before I, in quotes, knew her well, that there's something inside many of us, and I think many of us who answer the call, and I know that's not a very, um, it's not a very popular idea in some circles to answer a call for service to humanity, but Florence Nightingale was all about that. And I think it is the difference between a nurse who really makes a difference in the family life and the patient's life and, uh, and one who is a thorn in the side of the family, the patient. I think if, if you're not called to be a nurse, there's plenty of other work that's not so messy and not so emotionally draining. You're welcome to pursue. Um, so when I, when I saw that Florence Nightingale worked, from her bed. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she was sick for like 10 years, wasn't it? Oh, 50 years. 50? Yes. Listen, she came back from the Crimea with this Crimean fever, and she was 37. And she was sick for the rest of her life, and she died at 90. Wow. And I mean, she wasn't prolifically writing when she was 90. She, she sort of slowed down at 85, <laughs> but goodness gracious. And you know what she did? She would, she would wake up every morning with a prayer of thanks. You know, she took another breath, <laughs> which we should all be doing. Gosh, especially if you live in the West Coast. Oh my gosh. So bad with all those fires and everything right now. Yeah. But she would look at her schedule because she was sort of the ad hoc advisor you know, women didn't have that kind of a position in Victorian England. And she was an ad hoc advisor because of Victoria was um, just looked up to her so much. Queen Victoria did. And they were friends, if you will. Not that the queen befriends too many people, but they, they, there are several letters between them. And of course, um, she went up to Balmoral and, you know, was with them uh, for when she was presented with a medal and so forth from, from uh, Victoria. But um, she, would, she would assess her own physical being in the morning. And she had a person who was her secretary, so to speak. And usually from about 11 till on a good day, two o'clock, she could have visitations. And this included 
oh, all the people who served as viceroys of India and different policymakers in the parliament. I mean, because she was a statistician and she was she had created the Nightingale School, she had written over 500 pages of statistics and a whole plan for how to improve the British military hospital system. I mean, this woman did not quit. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, she's like the first true remote worker to, <laughs> you know, as well. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, no, and it's it's amazing um, when you see people like that um, who are at home. They're they're at a massive uh, disadvantage, and yet she can still impact the world and and change the way that healthcare at that time was uh, being delivered. Indeed. So I want to be like her. Yeah. Um, all right, Candy, thank you so much for this. Can you tell everybody uh, where they can find out more about you, get your books, um, and contact you, whatever uh, they can do to stay in touch with you? Exactly. So my main, uh, my main website is candycampbell.com. That's Campbell, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L.com. If they're interested in Florence Nightingale, I have an agent, and you can write... Uh, info at pmiarts.com. That's Paul, P as in Paul, M as in Mary, I as in intelligence, arts with an S at the end for Sam, uh, dot com. And uh, that is the, what is a performance management international is my agent. And they will tell you all about it. And uh, you can go on their website and see films. There's a separate website, actually, I'll mention. <clears throat> I forgot. If you go to FlorenceNightingaleLive.com, you'll see even more photos and videos than on the PMI Arts uh, website, actually, with all the story of lots of things there. You breathe uh, new life into Florence Nightingale, keeping her alive. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today, Katie. I'm happy to in, in, uh, talk to any of your listeners. They can reach me through the website or candy at candycampbell.com. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.